Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. You know the deal, walking across the known universe with Dante in the comedy, or as some people call it, the divine comedy. We don't, because we know that Dante only called it comedy. We are at the beginning of Canto 7 of Purgatorio, where it lines 1 through 15, the very opening of this canto. We have come out of a long invective in which the poet oh, complains, uh, I don't know, gets so sarcastic about Italian strife that the invective almost derails itself, or perhaps even does, if you listen to those last episodes of the podcast, if you haven't listened to them or don't know where we are, you can, of course, join us here on the walk across the known universe, but it would be best to go (laughs) back and I'm just thinking how absurd this passage is if you were just coming on it without anything behind you. It would be best perhaps to go back and catch up to where we are in the walk. Don't worry, it's a quantum space. We'll always be everywhere at once. However, we are here at Purgatorio, Canto 7, lines 1 through 15. You can find this, my rough English translation, on my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read it there. You can print it off on your own and make notes if you like. And you can drop comments to me and continue the conversation. I am happy to be corrected, happy to hear alternate interpretations. Those are all part of the incredible fun of this journey with Dante. So let's get to it. Purgatorio, Canto 7, lines 1 through 15. After these honorable and easygoing greetings had been reiterated three or four times, Sordelo took a step back and said, You guys, who are you? Before any souls worthy of climbing toward God were shown and turned toward this mountain, my bones had been interred by Octavian. I am Virgil, and for no other wickedness did I lose heaven than for not having faith. That was how my leader replied to that other soul. As a guy who suddenly sees something right in front of him, something that makes him marvel, both believing it and not, saying all the while, it is, no, it isn't. So it was with Sordelo. He bowed his head and walked back humbly toward Virgil. He bent down low to clasp him as an inferior would. You can already hear the problems. How can someone in the redeemed part of the afterlife be an inferior to someone damned? Is Virgil right about what he says? There's an interesting bit about Virgil here that we want to talk about, something that comes up only here in all of comedy. We want to talk through that, and we want to talk about how this relates back to the narrative as it was happening before we stepped out into the poet's invective. So let's get started. We're going to take this thing tercet by tercet because it's the only way to really understand it. So let's start with the first three lines. After these honorable and easygoing greetings had been reiterated three or four times, Sordelo took a step back and said, you guys, who are you? Now, let me point out a couple things before we get into larger matters. First of all, when Sordelo says, you guys, who are you? He's using the plural. So he is 
probably referring both to Virgil and Dante, although Virgil is the only one who replies, and that is important to interpreting the passage. That's the first thing, and let me say the second thing. This is clearly a picked-up continuation from Canto 6, line 75. If you remember there, Virgil had said, you know, I'm from Mantua, and at the minute he said Mantua, Sordello jumped up and embraced him as a fellow compatriot. In other words, as if the invective really is just an inset piece in the back half of Canto 6. Let's turn to a couple of really interesting things. One, a little literary diversion for the sake of a literary diversion. Boccaccio was so taken with the first two lines here after these honorable and easygoing greetings had been reiterated three or four times. He was so taken with the emotion of that that he actually cribbed them. He plagiarized them for one of his own stories about a lost son's return to his mother. You can find that in the Decameron, day two, story six, line 69. Boccaccio loved the emotion of this passage, and we should note it. We interpret this thing, if you're walking with me, in the Anglo-American tradition, which is hyper-rationalistic, which looks analytically at everything. And we should remember that there are other traditions of interpreting comedy. One of those traditions is to focus on its emotional space. Italian critics are much better at this than I am and are much better at pulling out the beautiful emotional spaces evoked by the rhymes, evoked by the vowels, evoked by hard consonants versus liquid consonants. This all is happening behind us and unfortunately not part of what we can access in an English translation. For the moment, let's just say, Boccaccio was so taken with this emotional space that he cribbed these lines for the Decameron. Let me also say that while I'm there, Dante himself crib these lines. (laughs) They are stolen, picked up, uh, plagiarized from the Aeneid in at least three places. In book one, line 94, in book two, line 792 through 794, and in book six, line 700 through 702, and then again in Virgil's Georgics in book one, line 410. So there are at least four places, and some critics even see more where Dante is cribbing these lines. This is usually cited as a way we can say that Dante is returning to the original position of honor for Virgil in comedy. Virgil has come in for quite a drubbing over the first cantos of Purgatorio, and the notion here is that Dante is setting this up to return Virgil to a place of honor because he's quoting Virgil so, uh, what do I want to say, so forthrightly in the opening of Canto 7. Let me advance a secondary thesis on that just for a second. And here it is. Virgil's space in Purgatorio is still being negotiated. Dante is figuring out how Virgil fits in this landscape because he doesn't fit. He is damned. This is the redeemed part of the afterlife. The poem is moving 
on from the epic tonalities of Inferno to a more theological, philosophical poem. The poem is turning on a pivot away from its narrative at times more frequently than Inferno to theological and philosophical discussions. All of that is happening here and in this space as this is happening. Virgil is still our guide. And so my thesis is the poet is still negotiating Virgil's space in Purgatorio. This will follow us a long way forward in Purgatorio. Virgil will know things that it's not clear how he knows them. And one of the great philosophical disquisitions, philosophical treatises of Purgatory will be offered by Virgil on down the line from us. So he clearly needs a place of honor. He clearly still is our guide, and yet he has come in for quite a drubbing, even having to garble an answer about praying for the dead from his own Aeneid, and being told off, and being caught, and being forgotten by the penitents. I mean, he's just really come in for it in these early cantos, and it does seem that Dante is returning him to a place of honor, or shall we say, if we take my thesis in hand, trying to return him to a place of honor. I don't know that Dante is ultimately successful at that, but we'll get to that as we move through the poem. Moving on to the next six lines, so lines four through nine of Canto 7. Before any souls climbing toward God, this is Virgil's answer, were shown and turned toward this mountain, my bones had been interred by Octavian, that is Augustus, Caesar Augustus or Augustus Caesar. So Virgil is saying that he died before anyone got to purgatory before anyone could even get here, because the only way you can get here is for Jesus to have died and therefore opened the gates of redemption in Christian theology. Is this a complaint? Is Virgil saying, hey, I died before anybody could get here, so, you know, <laughs> it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. You couldn't get here when I passed out of this life and when Octavian interred my bones, which indeed happened. Is Virgil complaining or is he just stating the facts? It's um, a little unclear, and I'll tell you why it's a little unclear in a minute. Let's just look on in the, the lines. It goes on, I am Virgil. This is the first time that Virgil is named in Purgatorio, and this is, and this is what's curious, the only time that Virgil names himself in all of comedy. I am Virgil, and for no other wickedness did I lose heaven than for not having faith. I'm sorry to laugh. Oh, is that all? Just not having faith in a Christian context. That seems like a lot, but Virgil seems to be minimizing it a little bit. I didn't lose heaven for any reason except not having faith, and it finishes off. That was how my leader replied to the other soul. If we go back to Inferno and we think about Virgil's position there, when Virgil comes 
on the scene in Inferno 1. Dante names him, and Virgil leads off explaining himself by leading off with his works. These are the things I wrote about. I wrote about Aeneas. He doesn't say that. He says it in a circumlocution, more paraphrastically. But still, he's basically referring to the Aeneid and talking about his works. You'll notice here in this passage when Virgil identifies himself, he identifies himself by name and not by what he did. It's more personal than it is in terms of um, output. And when we get to Inferno 4 and we get to Limbo and the souls in Limbo, of course, we do find that this is sort of the truth. There is the claim made in Inferno, remember, that these souls have died and yet had had an honorable place and thus Homer and thus Ovid and thus all the Greek philosophers and Islamic philosophers and thinkers, uh, you know, we have this notion that somehow they're in this nice place, nicer place than most of hell, because they were rather worthy, and yet at the same time, they didn't have faith. So Virgil is right. Here's the problem, and here's why I keep stuttering and falling over myself. There's an essential irony here. That irony is named Cato. I mean, Virgil makes total sense here. He makes total sense of limbo, kind of total sense of limbo from what we know about it from Inferno. But Cato ruins it all. Cato puts the whole thing to its collapse. I mean, Cato is standing there. the shores of purgatory. And so all this bit here that Virgil is blathering on about for no other wickedness did I lose heaven other than not having faith. Well, what of Cato then? And how did he get there? And why is he standing at the shores of purgatory? You see that Cato really does fracture the poem. And it seems as if Dante wants to make up for some of his excesses, he wants to claim, well, some pagans were good enough and opposed imperial rule with Julius enough and were politically astute enough and were worthy enough that they did make it into the redeemed part of the afterlife. And then after that moment with Cato, he seems to drop the matter <laughs> until on down the line when we're going to hit it really hard in the face, right in the face later in the poem. But for now, we seem to rocking back and forth about the quote-unquote virtuous pagans and Cato lands an irony under this and this is what you have to kind of ask yourself does the poet know that there's an ironic fracture running under this text I don't know and I can't answer that question there would be no way to posit what the poet knows and doesn't know it strikes me that it's hard not to see it But let me remind you that when you're looking at a medieval work, you are looking at a work at least partially in process. Modern drafting through word processing and cut and paste and even AI is not possible in Dante's day. As I've told you before, parchment or, for God's sake, vellum, parchment itself is expensive. Vellum is ridiculous. Ink is expensive. Quills are expensive. You don't have the construct of modern revising that we now know about. So we do look at a poem that is at least 
partially in process. I'm not suggesting that Dante wrote this down in one go and we're looking at the first draft, but I am saying that the way I revise and revise and revise even emails to the book group I lead wouldn't happen in Dante's day. It can't happen in Dante's day. So is he aware that there's an ironic fracture here? I don't know. I wish I thought, yeah, he does. Because then I would think, wow, he's building this whole thing on fractured foundations, which is really fascinating. But I can't actually set my full weight down on that argument. I have to tentatively propose it, but also realize that Dante may not recognize the full ironic fracture that Cato causes when he tries to at least redeem some of the virtuous pagans in Purgatorio. Moving on to the passage, as a guy, this is Sordello, who suddenly sees something right in front of him, something that makes him marvel, both believing it and not saying all the while, it is, no, it isn't. I mean, this is really brilliant interiority, right? Really brilliant illustration of mental processing. There is a long-standing theoretical tradition that people in the Middle Ages had no notion of human interiority. This passage right here, these three lines will put that notion to the death. This is how I was taught medieval lit, that there is no notion of psychology or interiority in medieval lit. It's just not true. All you have to do is look at a passage like this, where we see somebody internally debating. In another part of my life, I am currently teaching the romances, the Arthurian romances of Chrétien de Troyes. Those romances are filled with internal debate, and they were written hmm, 150 years before Dante. So those also put to death this notion that there's no interiority. But I have to tell you, for a long time, it was the dominant strain of thought about medieval lit. And to say that, you're overlooking this very moment in which Sordello is debating within himself. You should remember, too, that when Virgil spoke earlier and said, you know, I'm from Mantua, Sordello didn't know this was Virgil. Sordello responded to Virgil from the notion that they were compatriots, Mantuans, not because he knew Virgil was this great poet. Now, I know in previous episodes I banged on that, you know, Dante doesn't want to be a poet like Sordello or Virgil. I think that that is a meta-true statement. <laughs> Can you be meta-true? I think so. A meta-true statement? How about a true meta-statement about the purpose of the poem? <laughs> it's so fabulous. That that verbal gaffe there was so fabulous. Anyway, um, I think it's a true meta-statement about the poem. But at the same time, I have to say that it's not totally in the text. I'm positing that around the text. Because in the end, what we know is that Virgil is uh, embraced just because he's a fellow Mantuan. Now Sordello knows who this is. I am Virgil by Virgil's own statement. So Sordello bows his head, he walks backward humbly, he tries to, you know, figure out his relationship to Virgil, and then he bends low and clasps 
Pope's Virgil as an inferior would. There's a couple things here. The bowing of his forehead is reminiscent of at least two moments in Inferno. If you remember Ferranata in Inferno 10 at line 35, Ferranata rises up and his chest and his brow are magnificent as he rises up out of that tomb of the heretics. This is in direct contrast to that. So while Ferranata rises up like this proud, almost Greco-Roman statue, Sordello bows his head. It's also reminiscent of Satan. Hmm. In the bottom of Inferno at Canto 34, line 35, there we're told that Satan's sin was that he raised his brow toward the Creator. And I made much of this when we were at it in Inferno 34, that that's all that Satan did. We don't get the whole challenging God mythology that runs around it from a lot of theologians. We just get this idea that Satan raised his brow up at God and for that was cast out of heaven. Well, this reference here with Sordello seems to be in contrast to that because when he meets Virgil, he bows his head, he comes forward humbly, he bends low to clasp Virgil as an inferior would. There's an enormous amount of commentary about how exactly Sordello embraces Virgil here. Does he get on his knees? Is he prone on the ground, prostrate at Virgil's feet? Does he grasp Virgil under the armpits? And this may be the answer, and let me explain why. Or does he simply kind of hunch down and hug Virgil from a lower position? It may be the clasp under the armpits. This seems to be where a lot of criticism comes down. The reason is that a royal vassal, not a vassal farmer, but a royal vassal, so a duke who is a, a vassal to a king, let's say, a royal vassal will embrace the king in the Middle Ages in this fashion by putting his arms around the king under the armpits, not over the shoulders, but under the armpits. It's a sign of feudal fealty and feudal honor, but it's unclear in the text. And in the end, you can't really come to any conclusions. We just know that he classed him as an inferior would. So that's the real question. Why does the redeemed Sordello abase himself in front of the damned Virgil? What is it about Virgil that causes Sordello to take a lower position as an inferior? Because Virgil has already said he lost heaven. So we already know in this passage, and Sordello already knows, that Virgil is condemned to hell. Now, how he got here is another matter. All of these questions are going to be answered, partially at least, in the next episode of Walking with Dante. So you have to stay tuned for the next bits from Canto 7. Wasn't that nice to bring it to a cliffhanger question? All of which means it would be great to have you back. In order to be back, you have to subscribe to this podcast. And hey, can I ask you for a favor? Can you give this podcast a rating or even write a review in any language on any platform that you're listening to this podcast on? Oh, that was a complicated sentence. If you could give it a rating and even, uh, no, thank you, write a review, even just nice podcast. That would do wonders for its analytics, and it's a great way for you to support the podcast, and I thank you greatly for that. 
All right, on to the next passage, which will answer some of our questions about Sordello's attitude toward Virgil. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then.